The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We could focus on a few high-value or high-interest individuals, We can do more if we're doing it in conjunction with allies, as we do in many parts of the world, though certainly not the Taliban's Afghanistan. But I think this is much more likely to be a one-off. And in my view, there's been some confusion when people talk about leadership targeting, where people tend to focus on the killing bin Laden or Zawahiri or Baghdadi or the, the very highest levels. And I think a lot of the success comes when we've gone farther down the food chain. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 3rd, 2022. Another day, another leader of Al-Qaeda is killed by U.S. forces. This time it was Ayman al-Zawahiri killed on his balcony in Kabul by a Hellfire missile strike. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about it all are Lawfare senior editor Scott R. Anderson and Lawfare's foreign policy editor Daniel Byman. Is it a big deal? Is it kind of old news? We kill one one day, another one pops up, and eventually we get him too. How badly degraded is Al-Qaeda? Who's going to replace Sawahari? What does it mean for the Taliban's promises not to allow al-Qaeda attacks on the United States to be planned from its soil? And what is the international and domestic law of killing al-Qaeda leaders 21 years after 9-11? It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 3rd, Dan Byman and Scott Anderson on the al-Zawahiri strike. Dan, get us started. We've got a million busy listeners who, you know, yesterday were consumed with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, uh, with domestic American politics, and, you know, killing the head of al-Qaeda. We've done it before. Uh, It happens periodically. You know, what do we know happened for those who need a little refresher on uh, what happened yesterday? Yeah, this really does seem like a blast from you know 2011 or something like that. Uh, so, uh, according to newspaper accounts, uh, there was a U.S. drone strike on Zawahiri's house in Kabul. So that's I think quite noteworthy that it was in in Kabul. It killed him. It did not kill his family members who were also in the same house, which is pretty impressive. And this is yet another blow to al-Qaeda, which has taken a lot of blows. And so there are kind of big questions about how strong this group is now. But the operation itself seems pretty impressive, especially in Afghanistan. And I think the Biden administration is right to at least try to take a victory lap on this. Before we go to Scott, I'm, I'm interested in how big a deal you think this is. So on the one hand... I can argue, hey, it's the head of al-Qaeda. It's inherently a big deal. Zayman al-Zawahiri was a bigwig in the planning of 9-11. He's the founder of Egyptian Islamic Jihad. He's kind of one of the major theoreticians of al-Qaeda, going back to kind of pre-al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda days. Uh, And he's been elusive for 20-plus years now since 9-11, we finally got him. It's a big deal. On the other hand, I can say, argue just as easily, hey, he was pretty contained. It's not clear that he was involved in any substantial terrorist planning for the last bunch of years. It's not even clear 
that Al-Qaeda Central is doing very much of anything. Uh, so it's largely a symbolic kind of we will get you no matter how long it takes kind of thing. What's the right way to understand the victory lap that the Biden administration is taking on this? Is it hype? Is it real? Is it some of each? Um, it's certainly some of each, but I tend to be more in the skeptical camp. As you say, uh, the Al-Qaeda core in particular, the organization that Zawahiri himself led, has not been particularly active. They haven't successfully launched a terrorist attack in the United States or Europe since 2005. I mean, that's that's quite some time. Um, there have been affiliate attacks, we, which we can discuss, but that's independent of the core, or at least at best loosely linked to the core. Um, and Zawahiri himself was not a particularly good leader. Um, he did have some skills. It's not, it's not black or white, but he was, you know, the least charismatic of the bunch in terms of jihadist leaders. And he, there was some severe crises that happened to Al Qaeda on his watch. And so there is a question on, you know, might Al Qaeda be better off without this guy? Um, it's quite plausible the group could implode, right? So it, it can go in lots of directions. But he was not a particularly good leader, so I can't imagine that people in the kind of, you know, I'll say jihadist uh, watching circles, um, I think most of us are probably more concerned about a successor than we were about Zawahiri himself. So we'll get to his successor in a moment. Scott, what are your impressions? Are you, uh, did you have a strong urge to uh, go down to the White House and chant USA, USA really loudly? I will be honest, I did not do that the first time when we got Bin Laden. I was not inclined, any more inclined to do it this time around. Um, you know, I think this move has some political significance for the Biden administration, maybe more than strategic. Remember the Biden administration, when it left Afghanistan after the collapse of the U.S.-backed government there last summer, almost a year ago now, almost exactly a year ago, it made the point that we're still going to be able to suppress terrorism in Afghanistan, prevent it from threatening the United States from this over-the-horizon uh, strategy. We don't need to be in Afghanistan to do that. We can do that from other bases in the region. Although a lot of people raised a lot of questions saying, well, what other bases do you have in the region? How realistic is that? How do you gather intelligence without people on the ground? Things like that. The very first effort we saw at this, uh, although, you know, it's arguably something a little different, was, of course, that really tragic and horrible uh, drone strike that occurred as Marines were still at the airport trying to evacuate people on what was believed at the time to be a vehicle that was bound to attack U.S. US soldiers and other people trying to evacuate the airport turned out to just be a group of civilians and, in fact, killed a number of children. An absolutely horrible incident we've discussed on the podcast before. And so coming out of that, you know, I think there was a lot of doubt both about whether how realistic it is to actually have an over the horizon counterterrorism presence and then how effective that would be, what the cost would be in terms of civilians. So in this case, you saw a major target that was had been making efforts to conceal himself for many, many years, although that appears to maybe have gotten a little bit lax uh, in recent years. Uh, the fact that he was hanging out on the roof in Kabul, not something we saw bin Laden do, at least to my knowledge. You know, the this is a pretty big intelligence success. You know, they were able to track and monitor this person for several months, at least according to media reports, and get their operations, their daily routine down to the point that they could take this strike in a way and using technology that really limited any sort of civilian consequences, as far as we can tell yet. Now, it's still early. There still may be more reports. There's at least one local report uh, I saw indicating that two members of the Haqqani family may have been injured and or killed in the attack as well. Um, uh, I think they were both um, kind of men associated with the leadership of the Ghani network. And it does look like, at least again, from the most detailed media accounts that I've seen, the missile in question, which is one of these ninja hellfire missiles that is basically designed to kill individual targets, not to explode and take out whole buildings, um, did penetrate the unit, the, meaning the apartment unit beneath the balcony. So there could have been some sort of, certainly there was damage to the property. Maybe there were unintended civilian casualties from that. So far, though, the United States hasn't acknowledged that they seem confident and are projecting confidence that, in fact, the only person killed in this was Zawahiri. So that's big from them from a success standpoint. Now, how replicable is this at a scale that actually makes a difference for al-Qaeda's operations? I think I share a lot of doubts that Dan's expressed and that others have expressed. You know, the fact that you can do this for certain high-profile targets and invest the amount of resources required to do that doesn't mean you're going to be able to do that at a scale that actually impacts al-Qaeda's or other terrorist targets 
actual operational tempo. Um, so I think that's the real question come out of this. But from an optics perspective, it is, I think, so far a win for the Biden administration. Yeah. So, Dan, what have we heard from al-Qaeda on this subject? When, back when we got bin Laden, they acknowledged it pretty quickly. Uh, what have they had to say on this? To my knowledge, at least so far, we haven't heard um, anything uh, official from al-Qaeda channels. Uh, there is a question of whether they have a successor in place or not. So something for obvious reasons they'd like to do is say, you know, Zawahiri has joined the Great List of Martyrs, but Al-Qaeda endures and now will be, you know, ever strong under the new leader. And it was pretty clear when Bin Laden was killed that Zawahiri was likely to take the helm. Not 100% clear, but likely. Uh, there's a, probably a bit more debate as to who's the right person right now. And so they may want to resolve that internally, but obviously, given the publicity this has received, they're going to have to do something. So I expect at least a short statement fairly soon. Yeah, so let's talk about the issue of al-Qaeda successors. This is a bit like, you know, an open primary and in if the president decided not to run or something. You don't have an obvious heir apparent here. It's not like when bin Laden was killed where Zawahiri was kind of the running mate and he gets the nomination then. Here, a lot of the, as you have documented over the years, Dan, a lot of the middle management has been taken out in drone strikes in both Yemen and, and Pakistan over the years. You don't have a sort of rising next generation uh, you know, there's no sort of like Pete Buttigieg of Al-Qaeda. Like, so what What do you do if you're Al-Qaeda? Is there, are there like names that are, you know, like doing well in New Hampshire? Uh, so the, there's been a lot of speculation that a longtime jihadist, another Egyptian named Saif al-Adil, is the likely successor. Uh, he was the interim um, head of Al-Qaeda, when after bin laden was killed in the kind of you know held hell he will be the one that is managing the organization while we choose a successor so it wasn't done in the sense that he would be the successor but rather you know he was the steady hand at the till if you will so he's one possibility uh, there are a couple problems with him one is that you know he made his bones as part of the you know egypt effort then the afghanistan effort uh, that was a long time ago and so the relevance of the anti-Soviet struggle, it is one of the founding myths of the movement. But, you know, for the vast majority of jihadists today, they weren't alive while that was going on. And so whether this guy can capture um, them is, is questionable. And then an even bigger problem is that we think he's been based in Iran. And this is a whole knotty issue about how Iran shelters some of the al-Qaeda people but the broader Sunni jihadist world is not a big fan of the Iranians, is incredibly um, bigoted against Shia Muslims. And uh, al-Qaeda has always seen this as a marriage of convenience. But to have your head be based in Iran is a really big deal. And it risks discrediting the movement as a whole among the rank and file. There are questions on whether he would truly have you know, freedom to lead the movement. That's another issue. Now, whether the Iranians would just dump him to Afghanistan is, is quite plausible. But alternatives to Adol uh, could be someone who's fought in one of the more regional organizations, so fought in Yemen, fought in the Maghreb. But these weren't uh, jihads that unified the movement as a whole. So the fighting in Yemen was important. The fighting in the Maghreb was important, but it wasn't the sort of thing that attracted huge numbers of fighters from all around the world the way Afghanistan did. Um, or later on the way Syria did. So presumably there is some, you know, up-and-coming jihadist who may be getting a lot of buzz, but they're going to have issues identifying someone who will please a lot of constituencies. Um, and then to say the last, I think, somewhat obvious point, any new leader is going to have to be visible to consolidate his power. He's going to have to give statements. He's going to have to communicate with regional branches and operatives. And that's a tremendous vulnerability. So we saw this with the Islamic State, where the United States quickly killed successors. And it's quite plausible to me that any leader trying to establish themselves is at risk. And if a leader comes up and says, OK, I'm going to play it safe by not communicating and trying to hide, that person's not going to be too good a leader. Scott, I want to 
talk about the Taliban here, because we have with this pretty clear evidence that the Taliban is not honoring its agreement to, you know, keep al-Qaeda out of the newly Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, which was essentially part of the U.S. withdrawal agreement. I don't suppose anybody is very surprised by that, but it is got to be embarrassing for them, given that they committed themselves in this regard. What do you expect to see from the Taliban in response to this? Is it is it likely to be a, a sort of shrug and denial that they knew? Is it do you think it will cause international embarrassment for them or, or just do they just not care? Well, so the Taliban's role in all this actually is something I think we need to wait a little bit to see what comes out. And we also need to stop thinking about the Taliban necessarily as a unitary actor. The Taliban has a lot of different centers of power kind of embedded within its governing apparatus and related non-government related but pre-existing paramilitary and political apparatuses that don't always act in perfect coordination. In this case here, it's worth noting, you know, Taliban officials have said that we, they actually say this strike itself is in violation of the withdrawal agreement. The withdrawal agreement says essentially not that we're not going to let anyone from al-Qaeda in the country. It says we're not going to let al-Qaeda use the country as a base for operations or activities that target the United States. Um, and I am assuming that when they say, oh, this violated the agreement, uh, we didn't, we, the Taliban, did not violate the agreement the United States did, they are saying, look, just because this guy was in the country doesn't mean he was doing anything. He wasn't doing anything that threatened the United States. So we're in compliance with the agreement. You know, query how credible that is. I'd be curious actually about Dan's take on that, how credible that is as an assertion to what extent he had retired from or more or less fully retired from the actual operational parts of, of his job. Well, so wait, let's 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 talk about that. Is Dan, as a functional matter, would the Taliban have a case that uh, they were not providing him operational an operational base they were basically you know leisure world or something and you know and and zawahiri was you know sort of hanging out by the swimming pool but not doing anything that was in violation of the agreement when was the last time we know zawahiri was in a meaningful functional sense running al-qaeda so this is uh you know maybe there's a al-qaeda lawfare equivalent where they they debate the question I'm about to raise, which is, what does operational mean? Because the U.S. government line tends to be, you know, look, Zawahiri provides strategic direction. So he's saying, you know, attack the United States, um, work together, and related to that is propaganda, right? He's trying to explain the world. He's trying to, you know, attract recruits. He, in my view, he tends to be pretty bad at propaganda, but he's nevertheless doing propaganda. Is that different in any meaningful way from, you know, let's conspire together to plant a bomb on an airplane somewhere. And um, I think the Biden administration's position is probably, no, you know, strategic direction, if anything, might be more important. But I wonder if the Taliban's case would be, you know, look, there was no plot being orchestrated from that neighborhood in Kabul. Yeah, he's giving interviews and so on, but so what? So I think it's a, a lot may depend on where you draw the line, although it is plausible that there were operations going on I simply don't know about. What do you think, Scott, is is if all he's doing is giving strategic direction, uh, does the Taliban have an argument? You know, in the end, it doesn't really matter <laughs> from a perspective of this agreement. I mean, the agreement between the Taliban and the United States, the Trump administration ironed out, it's not legally binding in any sort of way we would understand it's never going to be put before a court. So in the end, it's kind of in the eyes of the beholders about what exactly this means. And I frankly feel pretty good in, uh, you know, the inference that this was probably one of those ambiguities that served both parties as they tried to iron out this agreement. It, it allowed for the Taliban to say, this doesn't mean we're abandoning our longstanding friends or allies uh, or people who have been here for a long time entirely. It just means we have to limit the activities that they can do in our space. And for the United States can say, well, look, you know, 
They may think that, but that's not our position on how we're going to interpret and apply this. And in the end, you know, this is frankly the, the sort of scenario that if they had been forced to expressly debate what the appropriate approach would be, but the two parties may have broken that agreement, the fact that they didn't and embraced ambiguity by Hobie results, I think, you know, just is again part of the negotiation process for these international agreements. Uh, and again, it is not a binding international agreement for any sort of international arrangement. And this just fits squarely within that. Um, certainly the Taliban knew the United States position was, Zawahiri was a legitimate military target. And, you know, you don't have to look at the United States approach or rhetoric to its counterterrorism efforts over the last 21 years to it's hard to reach any conclusion other than the fact they're going to go after that target if it presents itself as a moment of opportunity, borrowing something dramatic like a, you know, renunciation or, you know, physical disability, maybe something like that. So, you know, I don't think this was a surprise to the Taliban. I think it was kind of baked into its calculus. We also have to acknowledge here that, you know, it appears he was being kind of uh, supported by a faction, the Haqqani network, a Haqqani faction within the Taliban that itself is controversial, has caused problems with the international community, with outside for other Taliban factions that are more interested in trying to normalize to some extent. And a lot of people have raised the suggestion that maybe elements of the Taliban, parts of the Taliban may have even been involved in identifying Zawahiri, facilitating the intelligence collection that led to the strike. Certainly, again, you know, several months of close, close surveillance is an impressive task that, especially when done from afar, if you don't have folks on the ground really helping you do that, as is probably hard for the United States to have in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, absent Taliban support. That said, you know, I think it's way too early to make any inferences or assumptions about that. I, I think we'll wait and see whether any folks on the ground had played a role in this, how the Taliban react to this, uh, and how it impacts U.S.-Taliban negotiations and discussions moving forward, I think will be a reflection of that. I think there's a good chance that this may actually not disrupt it wholly because, again, a lot of the cost was baked into the decision to allow him to remain here and to continue to do work with the Haqqani network that was engaging with him. So it's still a little too early to draw those sorts of assumptions or assertions. But nonetheless, it's just not super clear 100% whether the Taliban actually was fully opposed or fully supportive of this sort of effort. And in reality, it's probably something in the middle because it's just such a messy, chaotic picture of different factions on the ground. What do we know, Dan, about the operation itself? We know there was this little, like, baby hellfire, uh, your own personal hellfire missile. Uh, we know he's standing on a balcony. We know that it was early in the morning. And we know that we think we know that they hit him very individually and no one else, and that there was a long period of surveillance. What do you infer from that about like what we can say about it operationally? Is this a an airstrike, a drone strike? Is it a uh should we assume they had a thing loitering up there for months at a time that this is mostly human intelligence? What can what can we say and what can we infer? So I think you summarized what we know quite quite neatly. I would uh, guess it was a drone strike, and just on the based on the nature of of the munition, at least it, how it's been described so far in the press, there's a lot of loitering drones at different altitudes that are going to be involved in this. A lot of them not armed, but simply for intelligence collection. And there are questions on where it was based out of, and you know, was it based out of um, Gulf states? Was it based out of Pakistan? You know, and I don't know, but that will be an interesting question, um, especially if it were based out of Pakistan. You know, what Scott said about is this kind of a one-off that you do for an, an extremely high-value target, or does it suggest greater persistent collection, um, to me is the big question here. A lot of the U.S. success against al-Qaeda a decade ago came you know, not just from killing bin Laden, but going several layers deep into the organization and removing a lot of mid-level you know, trainers and financiers and so on. And uh, that's hard to do without persistent collection. And it seems like you know, we, we haven't seen strikes in Afghanistan since we left, except for the head of al-Qaeda. So it seems unlikely the U.S. is going to go after mid-level echelons within Afghanistan itself. But Scott raises a point, which is, you know, do we have the intelligence to do that, even if that's something, that's a road we want to go down? 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And what's your thesis here, or your hypothesis, that, that it sounds like you're sort of working on the assumption that this is not the sort of investment 
we're going to be able to make usefully on a lot of mid-level cadre. I think that's absolutely correct. We could focus on a few high-value or high-interest individuals. We can do more if we're doing it in conjunction with allies, as we do in many parts of the world, though certainly not the Taliban's Afghanistan. But I think this is much more likely to be a one-off. And in my view, there's been some confusion when people talk about leadership targeting, where people tend to focus on the killing bin Laden or Zawahiri or Baghdadi or the, the very highest levels. And I think a lot of the success comes when we've gone farther down the food chain. Yeah, so, I, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of an overdetermined variable here. Because if you're somebody who, you know, really believes that these high-value leadership strikes matter, you can say, you know, in not rapid sequence, but in sequence, we got bin Laden, we got Zarqawi, we got Baghdadi, we got a bunch of the Yemenis, including um, the famed American Yemeni preacher, and we have now gotten Zawahiri, and there are a lot of others in there, along with a gazillion of the middle management, senior management. And the result is that al-Qaeda doesn't pose a particular, uh, anything like the kind of threat that it used to. On the other hand, if you're skeptical of this, you can say, look, we degraded them, they're, res they're resilient, they come back, and there's a kind of, you know, what the Israelis somewhat offensively call a mowing the grass strategy here, but that you're not actually dealing with the the real problem, which is the the generative, regenerative quality of, of this organization and others like it. So, Scott, is this... Do you think the best way to understand this is, yeah, we did, we, we did it, we'll do it again, we'll do it again, and it's just kind of something that every now and then you have to do, or is this not a good way to think about combating an organization like Al-Qaeda? You know, I, I would actually really defer to Dan on his perception, because I think he's a better sense of the strategic picture in this regard than I do. But my sense of this is it is a broader reflection of the fact that the Biden administration does not see al-Qaeda as a priority. We have an enduring historical uh, reason why um, we need feel the need to take actions to hold people account for 9-11 attacks and for other terrorist attacks on the United States. Uh, so here, you know, in particular, we're talking about the embassy bombings and, you know, Yemen attack, uh, as I think his role in 9-11 is actually a little bit factually contested. This, that is kind of a longstanding legacy policy. It's something that obviously the United States takes seriously and is going to commit substantial resources to. And then there's a broad effort to say, hey, you know, we need to make sure that al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, wherever else it may be, in Arabian Peninsula, ISIS in Syria, that these groups don't come back. But right now, neither of those is really a major military priority. Um, you know, we saw the United States withdraw from Afghanistan, shift to this over-the-horizon strategy, and this is the only the second time we've used it, as far as I'm aware, in Afghanistan or against an al-Qaeda target, um, certainly in Afghanistan. And so, you know, while I think there are terrains where the United States is still very actively engaged in combating terrorist activity that seems like it's going to a level that will achieve regional destabilization or compose a major international threat. Somalia is the one that really jumps out at me. I mean, we've still seen a pretty high tempo of military operations in Somalia, but a lot of other places that tempo has dropped pretty substantially. And really the emphasis has shifted to other political and military and strategic projects, you know, Ukraine being the most leading one. And so in my mind, this is an example of a case where the Biden administration needed a proof of concept that it's over the horizon strategy can work, uh, at least in given instances. It needed talking points that it can show there. There, This is a, a type of action that's everyone's going to support politically. It may have good strategic benefits, although I'm not sure for the reasons Dan noted how substantial they are really in this instance um, in de disabling al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, I'm not sure, has been the major threat that it was anyway, even with Zawahiri in place. And so there's no there's no real downside other than the risk of the operation going south, and they appear to have really hedged against that through extended surveillance and the use of this particular technological means. But because of all that, I don't know if this is even a mowing the grass. This is kind of like a little bit of lazy whack-a-mole, which is that you've got to show you're still playing the game by occasionally whacking a particularly notable mole. But, you know, ultimately, you may not be invested in that game that much anymore. What do you think, Dan? 
Yeah, a lot depends on, on a very basic question, which is simply how capable is Al-Qaeda today? And if the answer is not very capable, then, you know, as Scott said, lazy whack-a-mole, it's a perfectly reasonable approach, uh, but you're taking a low-capacity organization and keeping it at low capacity. On the kind of deeper mowing the grass side, we were pretty confident it was effective um, in the past because Al-Qaeda itself complained about it all the time. And so we have internal documents uh, that we got and as well as uh, captured officials who said, hey, this is a real problem for us. And so we felt, you know, not only our own assumptions about how things work, but their assumptions seem to, to validate this. And there is one thing that at least I worry about is you do have parts of this broader movement that are pretty robust. It's showing up in different parts around the world. It's certainly expanded considerably in Africa. I'm on the more optimistic side about the threat, but I have to admit there are certainly some troubling developments. And preventing the central leadership from, from frankly, from leading is very valuable. So whether or not uh, we kill the next leader or forcing him to kind of limit communications and stand aground, that will at least prevent uh, some degree of unity or some degree of consolidation that could be very dangerous. So I want to talk about the person of Ayman al-Zawahiri because uh, he's often described as sort of this boring, uh, very dry, uncharismatic figure. And yet he built the nucleus in Egyptian Islamic Jihad of what became Al-Qaeda or after the merger kind of became a major part of the cadre that did the most impressive and flamboyant operations. So Dan, who was he and how did he go from being a family practice doctor to, you know, being the head of Al-Qaeda? So we know a lot about Zawahiri um, in part because of excellent reporting by uh, people like Lawrence Wright, whose book, The Looming Tower, won a Pulitzer Prize. It's a fantastic uh, piece of work. And you know, Zawahiri comes from a kind of leading family in Egypt with relatives on both sides that are prominent in uh, religious institutions, as doctors, basically as, as an array of elites. Um, and yet he becomes a professional revolutionary, effectively at 15, and starts a small cell that becomes bigger, uh, and then spends much of the next, you know, this is in the 1970s, uh, spends much of the next 20 years trying to overthrow the government of Egypt. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that for, you know, most of his revolutionary career, or at least the first half, I should say, uh, he was locally focused, right, which goes against what bin Laden was pushing by the end, which was the problem is the United States, the problem is America is the puppet master. You know, Zawahiri would say, you know, no, you do Egypt first. And in fact, there's even a lot of speculation that, you know, initially his relationship with Al-Qaeda was, how do we use these suckers to take all their money? And, you know, they have money and they don't know what they're doing, so we'll, we'll kind of help them along and we can channel it towards Egypt. And even the Afghan Jihad, where he goes to, he's not up fighting in the Afghan Jihad. He goes there to rebuild his Egyptian group. He sees it as a rear base for the struggle in Egypt not as a way to fight the Soviets, um, in contrast to bin Laden and a lot of the people we, we associate. Um, there is a real question about Zawahiri's role in the direction of al-Qaeda in its formative period in the 1990s. His organization in the 1990s goes from defeat to defeat. They had real problems in Egypt and almost embarrassing real problems. Uh, Zawahiri's organization made a security mistake that basically handed their membership role to the Egyptian government. Right. I mean, it's basically, here's the jihadist Rolodex, and we're going to pass it to Egyptian intelligence, who then arrested everyone. And uh, as a result, they're, they're kind of reduced to their outside Egypt presence. And it causes a split, where a lot of the Egyptians are saying, hey, you know, we should be focusing on Egypt. But others are saying, well, we're meeting all these people who are focused on jihad all around the Muslim world. Let's engage with them. And... Uh, Zawahiri tries to create a new base in Chechnya. That fails. He's arrested there for a while. And he turns to bin Laden. Um, in the end, a lot of it's out of desperation, 
Right? He has failed in Egypt. He's failed elsewhere. And by the time you have this, you know, people use the word merger, but I would really use the word kind of the the tiny remnant of what's left of Egyptian Islamic Jihad gets absorbed into Al-Qaeda. And the Al-Qaeda mindset that the problem is the far enemy, the problem is the United States, Zawahiri is abandoning his old views and um, taking on bin Laden's view. He, a lot of people try to associate him with the 9-11 attacks, but as Scott said, he really seemed to have played no operational role in that. It was only told about 9-11, you know, shortly before the attacks were launched. Um, so um, he's someone who has consequence for many years, but a lot of his initial goals fail, and he rebuilds what he's doing, but very much in the bin Laden model, in the model of global jihad, um, and trying to take advantage of bin Laden's organization. And after 9-11, you know, he, like bin Laden, you know, kind of starts to, you know, always be hiding and fades a bit. And uh, he is still a logical candidate for succession when bin Laden's killed in 2011. But he's not the one that everyone's pointing to and saying, of course, this is the future of our movement. Interesting. So I'm curious, there's a a real disparity between what you just described and the fact that he is the movement's key survivor. Uh, he's, as you describe, kind of a failure at every step. And yet, Bin Laden, he's the guy sitting next to Bin Laden in all the videos. When Bin Laden is killed, he uh, he's the only other major Al-Qaeda figure, I think, regularly to release tapes. Uh, when bin Laden was killed, yeah, he. there's a question about whether he's going to take over, but he does. And he's been in charge kind of ever since, despite not, not doing a whole lot. And so my question is, how do you reconcile the lack of performance over time with his attractiveness from an administrative point of view? Uh, that's a, a good question. My own take is that he is bureaucratically competent. He knows how to run a clandestine organization. Um, you know, to be fair, if we want to be fair to Al Qaeda, it's under tremendous pressure, and it survives. Right? It's been twenty years since nine eleven, and this organization is still kicking. And so he's able to maintain the organization despite tremendous pressure. Um, and he also there was a you know. A near crisis when the Islamic State emerges and rejects Al Qaeda, but he was able to retain the loyalty of key affiliates. There was a six-month period where we thought a lot of the jihadists around the world would flock to ISIS's side, and they don't. So he does have some organizational successes, even though he's not really moving the ball forward in terms of Al Qaeda's ambitions. All right, Scott. It would not be lawfare if we didn't talk about the AUMF. How many Al-Qaeda leaders do you have to kill before you can say Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, whom we're not in conflict with anymore, and their associated forces don't meaningfully exist anymore, and therefore the AUMF's application, at least reasonably understood, is over? That's a very good question, uh, but it's not one that Congress bothered to answer when it authored the 2001 AUMF. Uh, you know, this is a law that essentially said, to the extent the president deems it's necessary, authorizes the use of force against perpetrators of 9-11 attacks, anybody who harbors them or supports them in order to prevent future attacks. It, it's got a lot of imprecision in the language there, and that has been capitalized upon by the executive branch, who has interpreted it in a kind of sprawling geographically and temporally model of a global counterterrorism campaign to a variety of groups with any sort of nexus to al-Qaeda. Now, it's not unlimited. And, and, you know, I think find actually some of these interpretations persuasive precisely because the 2001 AMF is so broad and it exists in a context of the separation of powers in which the executive branch gets high levels of deference, which Congress knew when it enacted that law. That wasn't new at the time, uh, although it's become much more stark than, uh, than it was at the time that the law was enacted. But nonetheless, the key point here is that it's kind of up to the executive branch. And maybe not even then, because one president may determine the statute is dead and irrelevant. Uh, and then the next president may decide, no, it's not, if it's still on the books. We've seen that happen most notably with the 2002 Iraq AUMF, which the Obama administration itself at one point said was not being used uh, and was, you know, a dead letter. 
and then a few months later found itself citing it again as the operations against ISIS in Iraq kicked back off. So, you know, long story short, this is really up to Congress if it wants to restrain these things meaningfully. There are lots of arguments and issues about how the executive branch approaches this, many of which I sympathize with uh, that are critical, but there doesn't appear to be any real mechanism or likelihood that the courts are going to embrace those limits. Um, I think there is a question a little bit about, you know, people detained in Guantanamo because of association with the Taliban or activities in Afghanistan now that the conflict there has ended. That's kind of a broader international law question. Um, but in this question in terms of the 2001 AUMF, the executive branch has been very clear across multiple presidents it still reaches Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda members around the world. And so Zawahiri fits very comfortably within that longstanding view, even if some people take issue with uh, the open-ended nature and way that the executive branch has interpreted the 2001 AMF. So, Scott, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the international law side of this as well. I think he's clearly within the AUMF, but uh, for international law purposes... Is this justifiable either as a non-international armed conflict? It's clearly not an international armed conflict. We've pulled out of the of the conflict with the Taliban, so it's basically a a, a kind of state. Like I, I understand where the authority comes from under U.S. law, because you know he's one of the people who perpetrated 9/11. There's a specific statute. But how do we justify it as a matter of international law? You know, it's a fair question. And, and there are some questions here, although I don't think they really gave uh, the executive branch much serious pause in this case. Um, but they may open up to some criticism from folks who take a slightly different read of international law. The executive branch's longstanding view has been that it is in a non-international armed conflict with al-Qaeda, uh, among other groups. Uh, but certainly al-Qaeda is relevant in this case, uh, and therefore it can engage the kind of rules of uh, the law of armed conflict in regards to those targets. That means that, you know, Zawahiri does not need to have been actively engaged in planning a kind of imminent attack on the United States or American citizens as he would if he were in a body with which the United States was not already at war. Uh, the United States was invoking its self-defense rights for the first time. Instead, it's saying this is part of a sustained conflict. And so long as he's part of that kind of operational hierarchy, he's a legitimate military target. Now, again, the, the question of how involved was Zawahiri in the that operational you know chain of command is a fair one. Um, you know, if this were a nation state and he were more of a political leader as opposed to somebody involved in military decisions, you could raise questions saying, well, is this really bleed over? But in the end, Al Qaeda is still a paramilitary organization aimed at military, uh, you know, purposes, including targeting the United States. So I, I don't think that really gave people much pause there. I mean, he, he hadn't disassociated himself with Al Qaeda. And so, you know, I think his specific conduct is actually a little less relevant here. Plus, we have the United States view, as Dan's already stated, that he was involved in the strategic guidance, at least. And that's probably enough of a nexus for government lawyers purposes. The bigger question is actually about Afghanistan uh, and the conduct taking place here. Usually the United States says, hey, we either can take military action in a state against an al-Qaeda or you know terrorist party target with which we're in an armed conflict, either with its consent. Um, without violating its sovereignty or where that state is unable or unwilling to stop the activities or address the threat being posed by that group. Um, here, who would give that consent is really unclear because there is no recognized government of Afghanistan currently. The United States does not recognize the Taliban as having that capacity and the prior government no longer exists. There's not even a government in exile to really consult or get authorization from. And then the unable or unwilling analysis, which I suspect is what they leaned on heavily here, there's still a element of question there because your the un inability and unwillingness is really supposed to be judged against the actions of a government in a particular regime to say, hey, like, you know, can you or will you do anything to address this if we share intelligence with you, if we were to do various things short of violating your sovereignty? And it's hard to do that when you don't have a party on the other side you recognize as having that authority. Um, you know, this isn't the first United time the United States has dealt with a situation like this or its allies. Um, the one that comes immediately to mind is Yemen at the end of uh, 2014, beginning of 2015, right. where there wasn't recognized government in control of the country. We still pursued counter AQAP operations, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, um, totally separate from the conflict going on between the Houthis and the Yemeni, the recognized Yemen government recognized by the United States, at least. So there are kind of ways to approach this that 
you know, it's up to the government to explain more fully how they would approach this. Um, certainly international law says that at a certain point, there are certain rights that even if there's no recognized government, um, a, a, an entity that is in effective control of that territory should be consulted or might still have the ability to exercise certain international law rights on behalf of that country, despite the lack of recognition. It's not clear whether the Taliban quite rises that threshold, although there certainly is a case to be made for that. Regardless, you know, None of this probably gave government lawyers a lot of pause because of the long history of the Taliban uh, being accepting of al-Qaeda. The unable or willingness test pretty much seems to be met, at least by them. And of course, the Haqqani network that's part of the government was involved apparently in housing him. So there's enough facts here to put together what is, I think, by executive branch standards, a pretty strong case that this did not cross any domestic or international legal lines. But I think there is still space for uh, observers who take a slightly more, uh, you know, apply a higher bar to some of these standards to raise questions and make it maybe a little less comfortable, at least in the domestic law argument on the international law side. Yeah, I mean, I, I have the having watched this uh, argument now for 20 plus years, it does seem like the United States and the Europeans in particular, but also the uh, some of the international organizations have reached a kind of modus vivendi in which they don't accept that they don't they don't accept the other side's international law arguments, but they do accept that the other side uh, has them, and that the Europeans and the international organizations accept that the United States is going to pursue this conflict on the basis of its view of inter the international law, not on the basis of the broader vision that is embraced by a lot of people in academia. And, uh, and it seems like that's, that's the, fun the fundamental compromise. We don't ask them to accept our international law views of the conflict. They don't ask us to fight according to theirs. I think that's generally right. You know, in some contexts, such as Assyria in 2015, you saw states, 2014 and 2015, you saw states involved participating in those hostilities under different international law theories, the United States under an unable or unwilling theory, uh, France under something closer to a humanitarian intervention theory. They didn't really buy the unable or unwilling approach, at least at the time. I'm not sure their current position. The long and short of it is, is that there's an acceptance of a diversity of international law views among states. I don't think many states, uh, certainly allies of the United States, are likely to raise any serious concerns about whether this complied with international law. That's not true of other strikes the United States may choose to pursue. Think of the Soleimani strike, which right. did raise those concerns. But this one is pretty squarely in what people understood the United States thought was appropriate. And, and people seem to be willing to, to, to ride along with that for the time being. We are going to leave it there. Dan Byman, Scott Anderson, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode, c'est moi. Uh, we are actually using a different technology for this episode. So if you have thoughts about how people sound, please tweet them at Lawfare and at me. In the meantime, there's something else you should do. You should sign up to be a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.